0: If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you, whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or anyone who's interested in languages. I'm Dr. Marie-Josée Bisson, and alongside my colleague, Dr. Caitlin Zavalletta, we are the language scientists, and this is our podcast. We are senior lecturers in psychology at De Montfort University, and we conduct research in the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So sit back and enjoy. Today, we're joined by Professor Matthew Inglis from Loughborough University, and he's here to talk to us about randomised control trials. So welcome, Matthew.
1: Hello there. Thanks. uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Matthew completed his uh, undergraduate degree in mathematics and his postgraduate studies in education at the University of Warwick. He is now a professor of mathematics cognition. Now, before we jumped into today's topic, Matthew, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your language background.
1: Well, this is where I appear uh, hopelessly unqualified for your podcast, I'm afraid. My, my language background is pretty meager. So, I mean, obviously, I studied, studied other languages in school, so I did German at GCSE, but I um, not with a great deal of success i'm afraid i I wouldn't classify myself as very linguistic at all um although perhaps of interest is i did a couple of years ago i did start learning um esperanto um while i was commuting to work on the train i that was my how to occupy my mind while i was on the train um which i enjoyed and i still do from time to time although that got a bit of a hit because of the pandemic and i had to stop commuting and i couldn't it turned out it was very closely tied to the physical location I was doing it so
0: but that's really interesting so you don't classify yourself as a language learner or somebody that uh, does language learning yet actually from what you're saying I would say that you are
1: well yeah maybe uh, well I mean you know you're the expert <laughs> I'm going to take that as a as a compliment everybody's
0: um. a language learner so why Esperanto that's an unusual <clears> choice
1: yeah, partly I was I was enthused by this claim. It's very easy to learn, um, and I thought, well, you know, I've struggled with proper languages, so let's try the, the you know the one that's most easy. Um, partly I was quite intrigued by the politics of it, so I was quite attracted by this idea of having a universal language that is sort of neutral for you know everyone is equally excluded from. Um, that seemed to me a nice idea, um, and also there was a, a Duolingo version of it that came out and that made you know gave me something to do on the train you know almost like a crossword or a word or something so i guess all of those reasons really um so
0: you're using it as a mental workout
1: yeah 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 i think that's probably right but it is also interesting i mean i do there's also interesting research on esperanto actually i don't know if you're familiar with some of the Yeah. You know, so there is this claim that um you're better at learning if you're an english speaker at school and you have one year of learning esperanto and then one year of learning French. You're better at French at the end of that two years than if you have two years of learning French, which seems an extraordinary claim. And you sort of think, oh, can that possibly be true? But I mean, the, you know, people have done studies on this and the, that is the finding. Um, I don't know how much one should trust such findings, but it's, you know, so it's kind of got some interesting properties, you know.
0: Something to look into. Yeah, so, I think it's um, sort of the
1: regularity of it, yeah. you know, it's super regular. So, so it, the way
0: it's been designed, mm. it's, it's meant to... Um, appeal to speakers of other european languages though
1: it's very european centric that's true Yeah. yeah
0: that's really interesting um i find that each podcast we ask people about their language backgrounds and we discover so such interesting things so thank you very much for sharing that with us um now i normally also ask our guests to tell us how they became a language researcher but matthew is a professor of mathematics cognition so you might be wondering, why did I ask Matthew here on this podcast? Um, it is because I was lucky enough to spend two years working with Matthew during my postdoc at Lovebury University. And I learned so much about how to conduct rigorous research. And I was hoping that today he would share some of his knowledge with us. Um, So one of the things I wanted to discuss with you today, Matthew, was using randomized controlled trials in research studies. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, randomized controlled trials, for those who are not familiar, this this is um, where we try and conclude, um, make a causal claim about the relationship between an intervention and an outcome, um, which is quite a hard thing to do. So. Randomised controlled trials, how they work is you have a group of people you want to make a claim about and you draw a sample from those people. So you you say, I want to draw conclusions about, I don't know, 10-year-old kids or whatever. So I find myself a big sample of 10-year-old kids and I randomly, that's important, I randomly allocate them to either receive one intervention or some other activity. And what that other activity is, we normally call it a control activity. What that is, is controversial. And we can perhaps get onto that later. And then because they've been randomly allocated, you know that these two groups are what we call probabilistically identical. So there's there's no systematic differences between these two groups because, because of this random allocation. So if after these kids have done their intervention or their control activity, we find a a, a difference between the two groups in some outcome measure maybe a, a language test or a maths test or whatever then we try and conclude that the intervention has caused that difference and because we know that the two groups are probabilistically identical we know that there can't have been anything else that could have caused it that's so that's that's the difference between a random allocation and some kind of just picking groups in three or some non-random process, there may be systematic differences already. And of course, these have been used heavily in health research for many, many, many years, and indeed in education research as well, but not very often in education research. Um, it was very rare, particularly in the UK, it was very rare to see educational randomized controlled trials or RCTs um, until about 2010-11, when the government set up a big new funding organisation to. Um, to set up and, and conduct these and fund these, these to funds.
0: encourage researchers to use this yeah. exactly,
1: and that's been a massive, massive change in education research in the UK. So, the vast majority of education research funding now is comes through this organisation called the Edu- Education Endowment Foundation. Um, so there's been a big, big shift towards doing randomised controlled trials in education. And we're just kind of at the point now where people are sort of thinking through what the consequences of that have been and whether that's a positive thing, or a negative thing, like what the what's the effects of this big shift? Um, and I think there's both big positives and, and some negatives as well, and it's quite interesting to think about about them
0: okay so I, th- I feel like there's a lot of things we need to uh, unpack from what you've just said for for everybody listening um maybe we can take things from the other perspective and you could tell us what happens if we don't randomly assign people to, to mm. interventions
1: yeah and sometimes that has to happen of course because it's impossible to random assign randomly assign some things so for example maybe maybe I could give you an example from my own my own work um, one question I'm particularly interested in um, is whether studying advanced mathematics improves general reasoning skills. And this is a question that um, that has been, you know, Plato made this claim, you know, to, to 2,000 years ago. So. so this is a long standing claim, but there's very little empirical evidence either way. Um, and one of the reasons there's very little empirical evidence is it's really hard to randomly assign people to either receive an advanced education in mathematics or not because of obvious ethical reasons. You can't randomly assign people to choose different A-levels. So why does that cause a problem? Well, when you just pick a group of people who have chosen to study mathematics and a pe- group of people who have chosen not to, and then compare their reasoning reasoning skills, you may be finding that people who are already very good at reasoning just happen to choose to study mathematics more often. So there may be some pre-existing systematic differences between your groups, which you're detecting rather than the causal impact of your intervention, in this case, mathematics learning. And you know, there's things you can do to try and mitigate that. So for example, you can do a pre-post test design, so you can measure reasoning skills before people start their course or off af- and then afterwards and see if the trajectory is different. But there's that doesn't solve the problem completely because they may be on a different trajectory. So maybe maybe what distinguishes people who are studying who choose to study mathematics from people who choose not to is that they're just on a quicker uh, trajectory of improving their reasoning and that's why they're enthused by a subject that allows them to do a lot of that kind of reasoning so there's really no way around or at least no easy way around this problem if you want to have a really robust causal claim and you want to provide evidence for a causal claim random allocation is r- is by far and away the, the most compelling way of doing that, because as I say, it removes any of these possibilities of these systematic differences between your groups.
0: So could you talk to us through maybe one of your research projects where you've completed all the research, where you've used randomised control trials and tell us what happened?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, maybe the one that you worked on is a good is a good one, actually. That's a, a nice example where... That we, is a great example, uh, very, yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you did a very good job of uh, making sure that worked well. Um, well, one example of that, we were interested in whether um, two different ways of teaching algebra, essentially, to early um, secondary school students. And from the mathematics education literature, there were two quite different approaches to teaching algebra that had been proposed and they had sort of different philosophical underpinnings um, and we were interested in in I mean some people sort of pejoratively describe such a study as a horse race you know but sometimes actually you do want to you do want to find the outcome of a horse race you know if you're someone who needs to make a decision about how to teach sometimes you just would like some information about which all things being equal is likely to be the most promising approach so that study um, we Got a group of schools who are willing to participate, and we, uh, at the pupil level, and that's an important point. We randomly allocated pupils within each class. So, if you've got a class of thirty kids, we took fifteen of them into one class and fifteen of them into another class, and taught one group one way and the other group the other way, and then at the end we compared their performance on a on an algebra test, essentially. Now, sometimes that's really hard to do that kind of study at the randomization at the pupil level.
0: I was just about to interrupt you and tell mm, you that this yeah. was not that easy to achieve, actually.
1: It was easy for me to achieve because I just asked you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine yeah. it wasn't so easy well, for you. Well, what
0: was hard is, is to actually, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, is because it's not always clear to teachers why we insist on allocating ourselves the pupils to the different interventions, because when you're a teacher, the easiest thing to do, and I totally understand why teachers don't have a lot of time and and it's um, disruptive to teaching when we just pick out just a few students each time from from the class. So for them, it's much easier to allocate a whole class mm. to an intervention than to just Pick students out, um, so it was really difficult to explain the reasons why we needed to do it that way. So sorry, I interrupted you there. No, no I just thought it was really important yeah. to to mention that this was actually not that easy to achieve, and I needed to meet with each teacher individually and explain this. And once they were on board, it was fine. But it was yeah. it was it is always the difficult route to assign at the pupil level.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think there's several several barriers you've touched on there. I mean, one is um, there's no I mean, I think actually compared to other countries, a big weakness of our, uh, in the UK I'm talking about, our teacher training um, programs is they're so compressed. There's not really any time to talk about, for example, this this kind of research methods issue of how to engage with education research at that kind of level. And so there's no reason why we should expect teachers to be familiar with these sorts of advantages and disadvantages of different research designs, Um, which is a shame because I think if we want teachers to be research-informed practitioners, we do need to provide them with the with the tools to do that. And being able to assess what kind of claims you can draw from different kinds of papers is is, is an important skill, I think, and, and one that our teacher training uh, system doesn't value very much. So that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is you could criticize our research design by saying, well, it's an unrealistic design because you were teaching Children in very small groups of much smaller groups than you would in a normal class um, because of this random allocation. So maybe it would be desirable to randomize at the group level, so at the class level or even at the school level. So maybe what we could have done is rather than take a class and split them randomly into two, we could have taken two classes and randomly split each into two. Uh, sorry, randomly split the classes into two different groups. And you can do that, and, and people do do these. They, such things are called cluster randomized control trials. Um, but the, one of the issues with those is they are you, you need a mass, massively bigger sample size um, because what you're really doing there is randomly allocating, well, in a class situation, rather than randomly allocating 60 kids from two classes, you're actually really randomly allocating only two things, the classes. So your sample size is 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 really effectively massively reduced. So you need many more classes and many more pupils, and this is I think is a serious issue actually with education research in in the UK, particularly because of this big new funder. I mean, in my view, a lot of educational research uh, randomized controlled trials are what we call underpowered. So they have quite a not enough participants to draw the kind of conclusions we'd like to make. And actually, if you start doing calculations about how many participants you would need to to detect the kind of plausible differences in, a, you know, the effects of these differences in teaching approach, you do end up running out of children. You know, if everyone in the UK was participating in, in randomized controlled trials, it, you know, that's not really realistic to expect that all schools are going to be doing multiple trials at, at once. So there is a genuine issue here about how to design randomized randomised controlled trials in education if you want strong fidelity to the kind of realistic classroom situation. So, yeah, I think there's pros and cons of, of doing it that way. Um, in my view, I think what I would do if I was you know, in charge of the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> the I, world
0: according to Matthew. Yeah,
1: I, it's a horrible thought. But if I, I, what I would do is I would try and encourage many more um, sort of small scale randomizations at the, the studies where randomization happens at the pupil level yeah. and then every now and again do one massive you know on the, the things you really want to know at scale and you really want to know if it's if this intervention um should be rolled out to the whole you know the whole country mm-hmm. then you can i think that's where you should be doing these really large scale trials where randomization is at the class or school level but i think at the moment we're in this sort of slight hybrid between trying to do very high fidelity trials coupled without the the, the sample sizes to achieve it. And I think that's that's leading to some problems.
0: So if we go back to the study that we ran, for example, Mm. I feel like we had about 200 pupils.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah.
0: Um, From many different classes, many different schools as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if we had randomised at the class level, I guess we'd have ended up with, you know, Uh, what sort of eight eight or so
0: yeah eight or so classes
1: which isn't really going to be no so to to, ref-
0: to reflect the same as the pupil level, you would need about two hundred classes.
1: Well, not as many as that, but yeah, I mean, many, many, many more. I mean, you you save a bit because well, it's not going to the statistics of it, but no, that's not. <laughs> <last. laughs>
0: Let's keep it simple. Um, but yeah, so you need many more.
1: I mean, most most trials run by the Education Endowment Foundation, where they do randomise, normally at the class level, have at least a thousand participants, maybe maybe, maybe two or three thousand. So it's you know a factor of. 10 more probably.
0: It's a lot of pupils, mm. definitely. Okay, so if a teacher then is being asked to take part in a research project, what do they need to do?
1: Well, I, what I would do if I was a teacher is I would try and understand uh, what the what the interventions about, um what you know, what what the goal of the study is. Now, obviously sometimes researchers try and keep that slightly close to their chest because they don't want to influence teachers behavior too much you know you don't want teachers to get super enthusiastic about this new this new intervention um, and then any effect you detect is mm-hmm. because of the super enthusiasm yeah. rather than the the intervention so there's a slight concern there but yeah I would uh, equally there's no point in getting teachers to participate in a research study and asking them to teach in a particular way if they're gonna absolutely hate that way of teaching because um, I mean you know, a teacher's not going to be a very good teacher if they really object to what they're being asked to do on some principle or practical level so it's important to understand the about the intervention i think i mean there is this whole line of research actually about um how intervention implementation goes wrong you know so if the the designer of this in- intervention has a really you know really neat idea and and sort of tries to roll it out across a large number of schools if if the sort of i guess you could call it the philosophy of the intervention is not well explained, then the person who picks it up and tries to implement it might might misunderstand the point and and you know implement it in a way that actively works against the purpose you know its purpose. So I think it is important for people to understand the teachers to understand. Well, firstly, if they have some principled objection to what they're being asked mm-hmm. to do, in which case, you know that's no that's no good at all. And also to have some sense of what what it's all about, like why is it why are they being asked to teach in this way. Um, so there's a lot yeah there's a lot to think about I think for teachers um but I th- I also think that it's really really important for teachers to engage in this kind of education research because you know I mean if you think think I mean maybe a good example is this the the recent pandemic you think about how important we all agreed that the trials of the vaccines were you know that really influenced policy and that changed and they were very very careful not to let people spend a lot of money and take all these or, you know not not to roll out these treatments or these vaccines without uh, evidence of efficacy and in contrast in education we're pretty bad at that you know we do roll out big initiatives um, across across countries and educational jurisdictions with little or no evidence of efficacy and that's that's doing everyone a disservice really it's it's wasting teachers time it's um harming life chances of, of pupils so my view is that you know as a as an education community, including researchers and practitioners, we really all should try and get to a point where participating in research is seen as part of the job, really, because that's ultimately going to benefit everybody. Um, it stops us wasting our time doing things that are ineffective. Uh, that's for one thing, and it helps us understand how we can how we can improve learning for, for students more generally.
0: So in a way, we need to um, educate teachers, but maybe come in early on during their initial teacher training to explain more about research and maybe a little bit of almost like research methods in in terms of... um...
1: Well, it's very difficult, I think, because teacher training is so compressed Mm. um, and, you know, there's so little time in in British teacher training, at least. Um, So I think it is quite hard to imagine how the system's currently structured, to imagine that that could easily be solved through teacher training. But I, you know, nevertheless, there is this early career framework the UK government's talking about, and we are, there is this big emphasis on becoming more research informed as a profession. And I, yeah, absolutely, I think research methods should be a fundamental part of that. Because, you know, to be honest with you, it is pretty easy to concoct a dodgy research study to try and prove something looks effective. You know, if, for example, if you just choose your, your groups carefully, you know, so that one group is just already better at maths than the other or, or language or whatever and the other groups worse you can you can make your intervention look quite good if you if you're motivated to do that and if people are not aware of what kind of features a research study has to have in order to allow a legitimate causal c- conclusion to be drawn there's a real danger that that could happen I think that does happen you know I I think' we're familiar with um, examples of ineffective practice being publicized because you know there's often financial motives and so on so yeah i think it's an important uh thing to happen exactly how that could happen given the constraints of the current system it's not totally clear to me but i think it's something we should all be working on
0: great okay so to finish this podcast what would you like people to remember about what we've discussed today what's the most important thing do you think
1: um, I, well, I don't know. I, I guess I would like people um, to think—I don't know—to get a bit interested in how small details of a research design can have massively different allows massively different conclusions. I think that's a little counterintuitive. So you know, often you you can read a paper and you know a research paper and the research two you know if you have two papers one with random allocation and one without up other than that line they can look identical you know they can have the same statistical analysis they can have the same graphs they can have the same sampling strategy and yet the conclusions that they allow readers to draw are radically different so i guess i would i would be happy if at least some people who listen to this end up thinking to themselves oh research methods are kind of interesting um yeah, should learn a bit more about mm-hmm.
0: that. Or if they read a research paper, then look for that line that mm. says participants were randomly allocated to each group or each yeah. condition. And that's only one line in a whole research article, when it's extremely important. Absolutely. And yeah. it could have been one that was difficult to implement. So well done to everyone out there. Obviously,
1: very bitter about this. <laughs> that's just good. Um...
0: Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Matthew, and for telling us about randomized control trials, or more simply, to randomly allocate participants to to conditions in a study. Um, In the next podcast, I will be interviewing my co-host, Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, about her research using speech errors. I just want to remind you to take five minutes to go into our show notes and click on the link for our survey. The survey will tell us what you liked about this series and what you would like to hear about next. Thank you for listening and thank you for the British Academy for funding our podcast. I'm Dr Marie-Josée Bisson and you've been listening to the Language Scientist podcast.